Hi, I'm the Bitcoin Dad, and this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod. For my first episode, I am here with Chris from Jupiter Broadcasting. Hello. And we're going to discuss the news in Bitcoin, some Bitcoin history, and a very fun Bitcoin software project. And just as we sat down to record, we got all kinds of excited. We saw some things going down on Twitter. Neither one of us are big Twitter guys, but ironically, right as we're sitting down, there's something major breaking on Twitter. Go figure. And it is bad news for the altcoin promoters. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals reverses a trial court decision in the BitConnect case. This could hold uh, promoters of altcoins liable for uh, promoting unregistered securities. Yeah, it looks like this involves the Securities Act. And so say you were on YouTube or a podcast and you were promoting a altcoin that essentially is a security as far as they're concerned. And maybe that's worth getting into. Um, you could be held responsible for their losses. And so say I was on the, as a YouTube and I said, you know, go buy Jupiter coin. Well, you don't even have to say go buy Jupiter coin or do you? Do you I have to encourage them? It to doesn't buy? sound like it. It just sounds like as long as you're sort of solid. Well, so I, I would say uh, that I think is where the argument actually is. I, I think that one thing you notice is that quite a few podcasts in the altcoin space, even if they have Bitcoin in the title, they might have an ad read that talks about a new protocol or a new coin. Yeah. That is clearly an ad read. And I think that would fall under this judgment. Hmm. So that means that if you've if you heard about a coin on a podcast and you bought some and you suffered financial losses, you could sue those podcast hosts. I even hear that there's a podcast that's a DAO. I wonder if you bought their DAO coin and suffered losses, if they would be liable under that. Hmm. It kind of sounds like you would be. Then obviously this is still in process as we're looking at this. This is coming out of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. They've reversed a trial court decision in the BitConnect case. Uh, and it doesn't seem good. I guess as long as everybody goes around just uh, just haphazardly saying not financial advice, everybody's good, right? <laughs> You're covered. Of course not. That's all it takes. It's just a little hand wave. Of course not. <laughs> and what's really interesting to me, I'm not an expert on the federal court system. At the same time, the 11th Circuit Court is actually, you'd think this was a New York judgment because New York has been so harsh on cryptocurrency with the bit license and other and other laws. Yeah. But this is actually the uh, southeastern United States. I think this uh, circuit covers Florida and Alabama. Yep. Georgia. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, and Florida has been, or Miami in particular, has been whole hog into new altcoin and other. Right. I wonder if anyone told business. this judge that Miami has their own coin. Um, they're the Miami mayor could be in trouble. <laughs> wow. That would be interesting. <laughs> There's no way it goes that far, right? Well, I don't know. If you look, uh, I, I think you showed me the Miami coin chart, and that thing has Bad. been plunging down into the zero line. Yeah. So if you if you bought Miami coin, maybe there is a case against Suarez. I mean, didn't <laughs> Suarez take his uh, salary in Bitcoin? Yeah. Well, if he did, he he may have some gains that you could uh, participate in. Right. Well, and I, I think, don't they, I mean, they must be selling that Miami coin for Bitcoin, right? I mean, I think that's, I think. What what I, else could they do with I, it? I think I did read a story that they took a nice little profit from it. <laughs> so I don't know. This is pretty new, but we'll have a link for it because who knows, right? I mean, this could be bad. You could start seeing YouTubers and Twitters and all of the peoples that like to promote these different things start having to walk a real careful line, you know, to make sure they don't get themselves in trouble. Well, to be honest, you know, this all is financial advice. If someone is talking about a coin and they have advertisements for that project on their show, and even if they've accepted money from the developer to interview them and maybe give them a softball interview, you have a financial relationship with that project. So, Obviously, we do none of these things, so we feel free to voice our opinions on this on this subject. But if you have a financial interest in a, a, a cryptocurrency project, you are an interested party. And if that is a, 
an unlicensed security, which I think we should talk about what constitutes an unlicensed security. It's actually pretty short. If the project in question is not Bitcoin or maybe Ethereum, then it's an unlicensed security. Congratulations. Pretty easy. That's actually from Gary Gensler, the uh, head of the SEC. Yeah, I, I guess I don't quite believe him because if Ethereum counts, then it seems like, well, then shouldn't Cordana count? Shouldn't maybe even Solana count? Like I start to look at it and I go, is it just because Ethereum is currently doing proof of work? And once they switch to proof of stake, will they no longer qualify? Like, where's the line at? I agree with you that including Ethereum in the non-security category is problematic. And I wonder if it's due to some metric of how distributed Ethereum is. So perhaps they might say, well, it looks like there are so many nodes that are not clearly being operated by one entity so this looks like a distributed network or maybe some measure of how distributed the mining is. Hmm. Okay. So if that were the metric, then I would say Cardano and whatever, uh, Solana, these would definitely be in trouble because one thing that the Ethereum competing altcoins are doing is they're attempting to increase throughput on a layer one blockchain to say, hey, look, we're faster, or better, or cheaper than Ethereum. As someone who's looked at uh, blockchain technology and done some experimentation, I can tell you from my experience, this is a terrible idea. Layer one blockchains don't scale. And so what they're actually doing is they're increasing the bandwidth and hardware requirements of the computers running this distributed system to the extent where you're going to have many, many, a, a, an order of magnitude fewer participants in the network. So I think at last, uh, at last look, the hardware price for a Solana node is, uh, you know, somewhere between twelve and $30,000. Oh. Because you need, well, you need- a I have no idea. I think you need a rack-mounted Epic server okay. with um, upwards of 200 gigabytes of RAM and um, NVMe storage because they're, yeah, they're really abusing the heck out of that system. So this is why you see stories like these- are consolidated on AWS mm -hmm. and on like large hosting providers are running some of these because you just need a ton of resources. Yeah, and actually it's not even the hardware resources that are consolidating them. It's that when you attempt to increase your throughput by speeding up blocks, it means that you, know, you, you can basically increase layer one throughput on a blockchain two ways. You can make your blocks bigger, which is what the uh, Bitcoin forks, Bitcoin uh, Cash, and then Bitcoin ABC, and then Bitcoin SV did. These are all terrible projects. Don't even bother looking at them. So they made their blocks massive. And this immediately broke their network when people attempted to use these massive blocks. And, then we, and, then, uh, and, and it leads to a problem where if the block is very large, even if you have 10 minutes between blocks, if a node gets the new block it might take more than 10 minutes to validate. So once your blocks get large, you have an issue of both network performance because you have to propagate them through a network, and you also have a validation issue because now you need a, a larger computer with more CPU threads to run the hash sum, hash sum checks on the block. So I, I don't know, I'm not 100% I'm not confident what route Solana, for instance, has taken. I guess I, what I would assume is they've made the blocks bigger and they're also issuing them faster. And since Ethereum already has a 20-second block time, which is very short, this means that all Solana nodes should be run in data centers with high-speed connections. And frankly, they should probably all be run in the same data center. And if you bring this to their to its logical conclusion, I mean, just use one computer with a database. It'll be much faster. <laughs> it'll, it'll be more uh, stable I, as well. How did I know you were going to end up there? Well, that's actually what BNB Coin did. So Binance Smart Chain, or is it is that BNB Coin? I can't. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So what they did is they actually forked the Ethereum virtual machine. So uh -huh. it's an uh -huh. EVM compatible chain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they said. And, you know, cheap fees, super fast. How do we do it? Oh, well, we just run it all on one server with a big database in the back end. That's, uh, that's a good solution in many respects. And yet it's huge as far as coin, coinages go. 
you know, Binance coin is like one of the big ones. It's like, isn't it even in the top five, I think? Well, I think that the the top five, the top 10, I just don't think it really matters because if we just, you know, if you have a, an archive of that chart and you just click back yeah. five months, yeah. click back a yeah. year, click back three years, you know, number one is always Bitcoin. Then number four, look at that, number four. It's, when Ethereum wow. came around, then Ethereum got to number two. Yep. But everything else has been just a revolving door. Yeah. So, you know, I think the 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 data shows that you know, if you're some sort of mutant genius who can buy low and sell that top, wow, good job. You made infinite money. For the rest of us who have to buy and hold and don't live and breathe trading, yeah, we probably would have been better off not participating in those. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be stopping the state of Wyoming, does it? Oh, that sounds juicy. Yeah, so this morning I woke up to the news so the first story I saw, and I just I had to get your take on this because I don't even know where you stand on stable coins, but I woke up to the state of Wyoming is introducing legislation to create Wyoming coin, their own stable coin. So where like Miami coin was on top of stacks and it was actually something that's fluctuated in price, this stable coin will be pegged to the dollar. Uh, why? Why? Why would a state want to do this? Why do they need their own stablecoin? Like, I my 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 mind just starts going at a hundred miles per hour. Like, are we going to have more than like fifty different stablecoins? Are we going to have like our companies going to have their own stablecoin, like Coinbase does? Are we just going to have thousands of stablecoins? Hold on there. Hold on there. I'm freaking out, man. Don't just just calm down. Breathe in a bag, <laughs> uh, made made of dollar bills. If that is reassuring to you. So stable coins are fascinating. And one thing I've noticed looking at the the official sort of government debate around cryptocurrencies is that the real meat of the debate is not about Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's about stable coins. And it seems that stable coins really freak out financial regulators and governments in general. And they freak them out in different ways. So Let's start with Europe. One interesting uh, fact is that Tether, the company that produces USDT, the Tether US dollar stablecoin, they also produce a, uh, a euro coin, a Tether euro. But that Tether euro has less than 1% of the usage of the Tether dollar. And what's interesting is that actually seemed to really upset the ECB. I recall last year, Lagarde, the ECB president, was almost concerned that people didn't want Tether. And what was that all about? So I think this actually ties into the story of money and how the world, economies and people seem to converge on one money. And like it or not, today that money is the US dollar. And so the demand for dollar stablecoins basically is mirroring the real demand for dollars in the world. And why it freaks out the United States so much is that dollar stable coins, you know, mechanically what they are is someone's taken dollars, put them in a bank account, and then issued a digital IOU that trades on an open blockchain. And when I describe it like that, doesn't that sound shady? Like, how do I know if I give them the IOU, they'll give me dollars out? And the answer is you don't, you have to trust them. And yet people find these digital dollars so much more useful than than old-fashioned dollars in bank accounts. Why is that? That really is egg on the face of the sort of legacy financial system operators. And I think the answer is, is that open blockchains allow for permissionless payments, and they also allow you to self-custody your digital tokens yourself. So if you think about a bank account... You don't own a bank account. Legally, you don't own a bank account in, in the United States. If your bank goes out of business or thinks you're suspicious, they'll freeze your bank account and you won't have access to that money and you'll have to enter a legal procedure to go and get that money and, it, and it'll probably take months. So with a digital dollar, even though you have to trust some issuer of the dollar, you can put that in your own digital wallet. And once it's in a digital wallet, if you secured that private key, uh, well, then there's literally no way to take it from you. I think that's pretty powerful. So 
Now back to Wyoming. Why would they issue their own stablecoin? One reason might be that Wyoming has taken a very crypto-friendly approach in an attempt to bring business to a state that is pretty pretty empty of anything. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think it's and I think it's fascinating too because Wyoming, when you're there, even in one of their biggest towns, it feels like a place time is left behind. Like they're from a bygone era almost. No offense to anybody in Wyoming, but it oh, is it's gorgeous. Yeah, it is absolutely gorgeous. But it feels like they missed a couple of waves. And maybe they're just trying to leapfrog now to this one, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. there's some really interesting writing about um, the history of the sort of uh, upper upper west states. Um, and there's actually a theory that Wyoming and eastern Washington uh, structurally, structurally look like an internal colony. Yeah, because they have a lot of natural resources, but it's not possible to exploit them without large industrial transportation systems. And so people who live there have always sort of been under the yoke of corporate interests, first based in Chicago and now based, I guess, globally. Kind of an interesting story. But what Wyoming has done is basically create a special uh, corporate vehicle called a Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institution. And this is essentially a full reserve bank, a bank in the traditional sense of the word, word like the, the de' Medici's in Italy in the Renaissance. And this is a bank where if you put in $100 or they can take Bitcoin deposits, one Bitcoin, they must always hold one Bitcoin for you, which sort of breaks modern banking because, you know, how do they lend it out and make some money? I think in a, a, an SBD uh, I think they have to uh, maybe charge you a fee to protect your funds or something. But one uh, interesting thing is that once you build institutions that can interact with Bitcoin, it's actually hard to make Bitcoin transactions with when there's a Bitcoin on one side and then there's a dollar on a legacy payment system on the other. And the problem is that it takes a long time for payments to clear in the, in the traditional banking system. So if you've ever used an ACH transaction from your bank. An AC- three days if you're lucky. Well, that's actually three days to get the money. Yeah. Technically, an ACH transaction takes two years to clear because you could send me some money via ACH and then a year and nine months later, it, you know, call your bank and say it was a fraudulent transaction and, and they might claw it back from my account. <laughs> wow. So this actually exposes you to a lot of counterparty risk when you're trading between Bitcoin and the legacy system. So a digital dollar is super useful if you're interacting with Bitcoin because it can clear instantly like the cryptocurrency transaction. Yeah, okay. So maybe they're creating their own coin because if they create it, it'll be sort of legally pure as opposed to tether which is i think legally somewhat problematic you know that you might be right there because they say part of this legislation is to set up like several layers of accountants auditors consultants and other experts to make sure everything is above board um and they're opening it up to uh public comment and i think they they really do seem like they tr- want to try to get it right. And the other thing that's interesting is it's a bipartisan group of legislators. It's not like just one political party in Wyoming either. Well, I think being the first mover on cryptocurrency business in the United States is uh, is such a great position to be in from a state's perspective. You know, there's a there, this is obviously sort of a technological and financial revolution akin to the internet or something. And if you can establish your locale as a go-to destination to set up new companies, that could be very invigorating. Well, and because it's, it's a digital, it's a digital product that people are creating, like in the case of Bitcoin, Wyoming can play in a level playing field. In fact, Wyoming can probably offer cost incentives that certain states like coastal states just couldn't offer, right? Like they could be competitive because it's a digital economy in a way that they couldn't if it was something that required a physical location for consumers or for the travel or whatever it might be that traditionally demands where companies set up locations. Completely agree. Also, look at New York. New York is a banking center with Wall Street, 
And it also has produced some of the most hostile anti-crypto legislation in the United States, the New York Bit License, which is a very stringent piece of legislation that uh, has actually uh, resulted in many companies, I think exchanges, not serving New York customers because complying with this uh, legislation is so difficult. Yeah, it also means that businesses just left New York, went to states that didn't have these regulations and are now happily employing hundreds of people there and paying taxes. Sure. I mean, I think we're probably both thinking of the same place. A lot of these businesses went to Texas and I think the the government of Texas has been has tried to be very friendly to these um, these crypto businesses, which unfortunately moves crypto into sort of the U.S. bipartisan political discourse, you know, and uh, you know that's unfortunate because I don't think there's anything inherently political about this technology. But you know, when one side takes one view, the other side sort of do they have to take the opposing view? Maybe. It seems, it almost seems like they have to, like it's, you know, <laughs> just physics almost. <laughs> well, so our next story, a Russian Supreme Court ruling classifies illicit crypto, uh, illicit crypto use under, under money laundering laws. Hold on. That's not what I was. <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, that illicit use. Um, I guess really you should probably oh, start okay. with the meta story that uh, around Russia and the fact that they okay. were talking about the bank clearly doesn't want it, right? Yes. So, okay. So our next story has to do with Russia and a recent Russian finance ministry uh, public comment period on a new crypto bill. So the context here is that I believe, was it the finance ministry or was it the central bank? Central bank, I think, is the most recent round that came out first. So, so there's there's an interesting back and forth yeah. where the central bank was pushing for a ban yeah. on cryptocurrency. And the Russian executive branch, who shall remain unnamed, we don't want to be on that list, uh, has... Um, has, uh, has actually pushed back and requested um, input from the finance ministry on the potential benefits to cryptocurrency for Russia. Yeah. So what's interesting here is that if we zoom out and look at uh, Russia from a macroeconomic position, they have a lot of problems interacting with the U.S. dollar-based international financial system. Specifically, they need to sell energy. They sell a lot of oil. And they've been barred from dollar payments by the U.S. because the U.S. has um, essentially controls uh, many choke points in the international dollar system. This has resulted in Russia trading oil with China using euros as a settlement currency. And also some, some trades use, I think, Chinese yuan or um, Russian rubles as settlement, which is... This is, this is actually quite revolutionary uh, historically because since the 1970s, the, uh, the only uh, currency you could purchase oil from Saudi Arabia and OPEC uh, from has been the dollar. So in, in this sense, cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin in particular, could actually be a very effective payment mechanism for a state like Russia that can't participate in the international dollar system. You know, because Bitcoin is permissionless, there's literally no way to stop someone from using that. However, Russia also is a relatively, uh, a country with relatively few civil liberties uh, and with traditionally very tight financial controls. I think some other context is that in the past 20 years, I believe that the Russian ruble has essentially gone to zero versus the dollar twice. So people who live in Russia have had their savings wiped out at least twice, completely, 100% loss in the past 20 years. So uh, in that sense, the Russian central bank seems very unwilling to let Russian citizens interact with crypto. So there's an interesting dichotomy here mm -hmm. where it's almost like they want crypto for the government, but not for the people. I did see a report go around recently that said something to the effect of 
the Russian population holds somewhere around $200 billion worth of crypto. Which is a pretty large amount considering that Russia has the same size GDP as uh, Italy. I mean, I think it's like $4 billion a year or something. I mean, not $4, four trillion a year. Yeah, quite, right. Quite small. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good, that is a good portion. Um, it seems clear to me that uh, the executive branch, as you put it, uh, is aware of the strategic possibilities, is also aware of the realities of their energy production situation, and probably looks at Bitcoin mining as a potential, not only a way to generate Bitcoin, but an obvious way to monetize some of their energy production that doesn't require selling to Europe, for example. For sure. And as we are learning from the rhetoric going back and forth about the Ukraine situation, um, the U.S. government is currently threatening the Russian Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, which is an important project for them to ship natural gas to Germany, which is one of the largest consumers of natural gas in Europe. So if they have a way to directly monetize their their gas and oil and energy reserves in their country in a way that can't be disrupted by an external force, that seems like sort of a no-brainer. It does require two to tango, though. Whoever's buying that, that energy from Russia would also be, need to will, be willing to uh, use, I guess, Bitcoin. And if China is that buyer, it seems that might not be very likely. Well, I, I don't know. In, in many ways, Russia and China have similar political structures. Sure, yeah. Neither are open democracies or open societies. And actually, Russia apparently has been purchasing a lot of technology from China to exert control over their internal internet to uh, basically, I guess, control news narratives that their population sees. Mm. Well, so, isn't that just a little kumbaya? So given that Russia seems willing to limit the the financial freedom of their population while engaging with cryptocurrency, China may also uh, do the same, though perhaps not not hmm. say so hmm. uh, publicly. Yeah, okay. I was speculating about that as well. I guess I can't help but be selfish. Um, it, it seems like when China decided to ban Bitcoin, that's when a lot of U.S. lawmakers started looking at Bitcoin in a different light. And if Russia enable or if Bitcoin enables Russia to bypass our sanctions a little bit, if it makes the pain even just a little bit less for Russia, I worry that could influence the way lawmakers look at the cryptocurrency scene in general. I, I hear you. At the same time, I think that there's a lot of legacy business in the United States that's getting involved with Bitcoin. You know, of course, there's MicroStrategy and Tesla, companies that have, that have purchased large amounts of Bitcoin and put it on their corporate balance sheet. And then you also have uh, large Bitcoin mining startups getting involved in um, grid-level energy balancing and power purchase agreements in Texas. So in my mind, there seems to be a large amount of business interest in the United States uh, surrounding this new technology. And... You know, the question will be, is there enough incumbent momentum here to prevent the fact that it's permissionless and so-called geopolitical bad actors can also participate in it to, you know, stop stringent regulation in the United States or punitive? Sorry, that was the word. Yeah, I, I also wonder, then you have the other direction, if uh, we get through this phase of regulation that we're obviously heading into a season of regulation, because let's be honest, it's probably going to be at an absolute bare minimum the remainder of this year that we're going to be in and out of different regulation discussions. I mean, next week, an executive order is supposed to come out that says, let's all get together on a federally a federal wide plan on cryptocurrencies. And then that's going to lead to the regulation action. This is going to be a year or two year process. If we're lucky, that's how long it'll take. And at the end of it, it may just kick off that nation game theory that everybody's been talking about where once – if we come out on the other end of it and everybody everybody says, OK, this stuff looks pretty legit. We're going to go with this. Bitcoin's property. We get this. It's good to go. I, I, could, see, I could see that being the point where essentially the, the U.S. is considered, OK, it's blessed. It's good. And that could be like – that could be within just two years. We could just be two years out or it could go horribly wrong. And I see situations like 
Russia or I see the president of El Salvador making a big stink about, you know, being able to put his thumb in the eye of the IMF. And I worry we're, those things are kind of pushing the scales towards cracking down on it. You know, it's a give and take. Uh, to look back in history, Satoshi Nakamoto actually was really concerned when WikiLeaks started using Bitcoin. Was that in 20? Yeah, something about like kicking the hornet's nest, right? Yeah, I, I, I remember that was early. About. That was yeah. like 2012, maybe? twenty. It's like, well, it was like one of the last things he said publicly. Yeah, he, he disappeared after that. And, and he was concerned that WikiLeaks would bring attention to Bitcoin. In a bad way, yeah. And, and hostility before the network was robust enough to to survive an attack. I think that today it's a pretty different situation. So, you know, there are node counts where, you know, I think on, um, there's some website that keeps track of Bitcoin nodes and there's, their number is that there are 15,000 Bitcoin nodes worldwide. And I think Luke Dasher Jr., the, um, the Bitcoin core developer who has his own Bitcoin implementation in BSD called Bitcoin Knots, uh, he, by his metrics, there are 40,000 Bitcoin nodes worldwide. And I think it's important to remember that Bitcoin is an anti-fragile system. So if you wanted to turn off Bitcoin, you'd probably have to turn off the internet in every country where there's a Bitcoin node, which mm -hmm. I think is every country. Yeah. And then you'd have to find that node and break it and wipe its hard drive. And if you missed a single one, the Bitcoin network would just blossom again. Uh, as long as there's one node out there with the history of the Bitcoin blockchain, if you download the Bitcoin core client from GitHub or, you know, I give it to you on a USB, you can install that on a computer behind Tor. You yeah. know, you don't have to reveal your IP address. Like all those uh, miners in China are doing right now. <laughs> and, you know, and you just, you know, you turn your node to listen. And yeah. if there's a, another node with the blockchain out there, it will propagate it to you and the network will bootstrap itself again. So... Is it really feasible to do something so cooperative today across the entire world to turn this thing off? Of course not. See, that's where I think the executive branch it, it was coming from. I think they looked at that exact situation. In fact, I think there's even a quote of uh, somebody from the executive branch at Russia saying, you know, you can't, you can't ban Bitcoin. It's like banning the Internet. Uh, I think they did that math and they said, OK, we can't stop this thing so let's use it for our own purposes right and i mean let's also just take a step back and say look every country has the right to policies even if they're hostile to other countries maybe they're good maybe they're bad but i think the the story of bitcoin is that you should not you if you want to be aggressive towards another country or entity do it in a reasonable way. Don't weaponize the money system. If you break money and you break payments, you're hurting everybody. You know, payments should be a neutral system. That fungibility is important. If you have a problem with someone, you know, resolve it. Don't make using money harder for every other human on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. There is a humane aspect to it. I want to I just step back a second, though, because you were just talking about how many Bitcoin no nodes there are, and how, you know, you could just start, they could, they could rebuild, essentially, if one copy of the network exists. I think that goes back to the conversation you are having earlier about block size, right? Uh, you could run a Bitcoin node on a Raspberry Pi. There's a satellite, one of those little box satellites up in space that runs a Bitcoin node. And part there, of the there, reason... There's a Bitcoin node on the International Space Station. Part of the reason you can do that is because of the block size. Like that is a critical element of Bitcoin is that I can take an old PC and I can turn it into a Bitcoin node by installing Ubuntu and running a Docker container. Yeah. I mean, you're going to need a bigger and bigger hard drive. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But it's true. Unlike every other aspect of computer hardware, hard drives are still getting bigger and yeah. cheaper. I mean, right now, I think, I think my node is using 600 gigs of storage and I have a two terabyte. No, I have an eight terabyte drive that I put in there. So, I mean, I'm good for a while. Yeah, but I mean, you, you're you not even pruning the node. I mean, you're... Yeah. you're no, keep, no, you're, of course. Yeah. yeah, you're keeping the TX index. Of course. You probably also have an Electrum database in there too. Uh, no, no Electrum, but I do uh, I do also run a Lightning node on there. And I have... Um, There's a wallet you and I were just talking about before we recorded that I run Spectre. on Spectre. Yes, Spectre. And Blue Wallet's on there as well. Uh, should we jump to our software section? Yeah, I think we just did. Sounds good. So 
this week, I decided to uh, rebuild my instance of Spectre Wallet. For uh, those who aren't familiar, Spectre Wallet is an open source wallet uh, for, for Bitcoin, and it essentially acts as a layer on top of Bitcoin Core. So it's written in Python, and what Spectre does is uh, you can install it on your node, uh, and if your node is headless, doesn't have a screen, then you can interact with Spectre through a local IP address. They have a little web app. I think it's Flask. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, Flask is a Python web web server framework. And uh, they, I think they've also built a an Electrum app, mm. like an app image or something. So you can run it on, um, on Linux. An or Electron on, app? Oh, okay, I got you. On Mac, yeah, Windows. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've, I've, tried it. I've tried it on Linux and Mac. So what's really neat about Spectre is it's a wallet that really focuses on multi-signature wallets. So a standard Bitcoin wallet is a single signature wallet. That means that you have one private key, you know, one, you know, unfathomably large complicated number. And that private key is the secret that's used to secure the the Bitcoin addresses in your wallet or the UTXOs uh, specifically. So the problem with a single signature wallet is what if you lose the private key? So if you can actually take two private keys or three private keys and combine them using a script to create a wallet with multiple private keys, you can now have a signing policy. So I think the probably the most popular beginner multi-sig arrangement is a two of three multi-signature. So you have three private keys and you need two of them to spend from the wallet. But interestingly enough, if you delete the wallet file, you need the three public keys. So a private key can generate a master public key as well. You need to, you need to take these three public keys and put them into Spectre or another wallet application to regenerate the wallet and find all of the, uh, the UTXOs that are, quote unquote, inside it. A great feature. Yeah. And what's really neat about Spectre is it uh, when you add hardware wallets or even um, hot private keys mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. it does so in a, way, in a way that you can like recombine them. It's easy to sort of substitute devices. It has really cool backup features where it'll it'll like print out a big PDF page with like, this is your master public key. This is your master private key, whatever. And so you could, you know, if you thought of a secure way to do this, you know, maybe you could run, you could do this backup function on a, maybe on a Tails system or something, you know, a, la- a one-use uh, uh, system that, you know, doesn't, definitely doesn't have any spyware on it. And you could sort of like, you know, generate all the keys and the backup data and then, you know, wipe the system and you're, you could... You could still have your Spectre instance running on your node, uh, and uh, and your keys would be secure and private. Mm, I like that. I've I've been playing with Spectre, and one of the, my couple of favorite things about it is you can have it use your own Bitcoin node as a source of truth. I think that it makes me feel like my, I'm my own bank, and I I love that feeling about Bitcoin. Well, that that's actually was a was a design decision in Spectre. So the developers, you know, there's sort of two two theories of building a wallet and most wallets choose to use an Electrum backend. And so the first, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. I would say that the first, I, and so Electrum, so is Spectre based on Electrum? No. Oh, Spectre is not. So Electrum is, uh, in many ways it's the OG yeah. Bitcoin wallet. Yeah. Uh, it's written in Python. It's been maintained for a while. Uh, I mean, to be honest, my personal opinion is that, Electrum has a lot of rough edges. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to do multi-sig. Um, you know, if I hadn't messed up an Electrum multi-sig, we'd be having this conversation from my private jet. Really? It was oh. pretty painful. So, oh, no. I got to hear that story someday. <laughs> well, you, you bring the drinks. I'll bring okay. the tears. <laughs> okay. So, you know, uh, Spectre, basically, Spectre decided that in their kind of design 
uh, ethics, they want to encourage people to use their own Bitcoin nodes. What Electrum did years ago, this was actually designed before Bitcoin privacy was such a big concern, is they wanted ease of use. You know, they wanted you to be able to sort of get up and running and using Bitcoin quickly. Yeah. And so Electrum actually, the client or the wallet that you would interact with, it's a piece of software that calls out to a backend. And if you don't specifically hard code a backend into Electrum, which is actually a little complicated, I had to do it on the command line, Electrum will automatically go to the internet, start listening for any Electrum server that's broadcasting publicly, and give it your XPUB. Because the Electrum backend server needs an XPUB to look up all the transactions for that wallet. However, if you start to think about it a little critically, why would someone run an Electrum server for free and and just let anyone on the internet use that? Well, they'd collect a lot of XPUBs. That could be useful for surveilling people, for instance. So Electrum, you know, in many ways has some privacy issues. Um, Spectre goes a different route because basically to use Spectre, they want you to run a Bitcoin node. And in a, in a way that encourages you to further decentralize the network, you know, not just altruistically, but because you actually want to use this wallet and protect your own Bitcoin. So you need to run a node. I like that. And the other thing uh, I felt is that it has pretty good support for multiple wallets. So I, it'd be a good tool for like a, a, our family wallets. And I want to do multi-sig with each one of my kids' wallets so they don't get taken advantage of and don't accidentally spend without you know, me co-signing essentially. So are you thinking of they have like a hardware wallet and you have a hardware wallet and then maybe there's a third key? Yeah, which might just be a hot one perhaps. But yeah, I was thinking they have a hardware wallet, I'd have a hardware wallet. Well, you could actually create a paper key that never goes on a computer. Oh, okay. And so that would be like your backup. Oh, okay. So yeah, that that sounds like, uh, that's interesting. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, I've heard occasionally... Uh, advertisements for, you know, oh, this uh, service and you can give your kids like a debit card so they can learn, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. how to be a good consumer. And I'd say running a multi-sig with my daughter seems much more appealing. They, uh, my oldest, who's just turning 13, totally gets it. Uh, Like for Christmas, he he wanted to, he looked, he went, he got some cash. He went on Amazon and looked at all the stuff he likes to buy and then kind of, you know, Okay, you know what he said? I was so proud of him. He said, yeah, I'd buy some of this and I'd like it for a few days, but I could put the 60 bucks into Bitcoin and I'll like that forever. <laughs> and I really thought, you know what? Good for you, kid. Good for you. And it's, well, if- and it's like I'm running my family bank. It's like our own bank for my whole family. It's And I'm going to give them their allowances in lightning payments. Gonna, oh, wow. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, that's how I'm doing it. It's going to be just, I love it. That's super cool. Yeah. So good, good, good first pick. I like that. Well, and, and I think that, you know, your son is probably picking up on the fact that if you save in Bitcoin, you know, if you look at any three-year period, you really did well, Yeah, you know? And yeah. so I think the story of human incentives is if you make saving pay, people will save. Yeah. And if we look over the past 10 years, if you saved money, that money was worth less at the end of every year. So why bother? There's something almost intuitive about it because... Uh, until he and I were talking about Bitcoin, he would get cash and he would immediately burn it on like Pokemon or something like that. Um, and then, you know, the Pokemon sit in a binder and doesn't really do anything with them. But, and I guess it was just something, but then when, when it came time, to, it could be, I could blow that fiat or I could put it into Bitcoin. The Bitcoin changed, thinking about Bitcoin changed the way he thinks about money. It changed the way he thinks about saving. And it even has changed the way he thinks about long-term planning a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. I have to say it kind of affected me the same way because, you know, when I discovered uh, Bitcoin, the technology was so fascinating and and kind of weird and hard to understand that um, it it just fascinated me. And And I suddenly like loved learning about it again after getting out of college pretty burnt out and kind of deciding not to not to tax myself intellectually for several years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it prompted me to sort of, you know, learn Python, you know, get into get into Linux, you know. So I came into Bitcoin because 
I love and still, but back then I was really loved network computing and network compute and groups of computers on the internet working together to solve problems. SETI at home, you know, uh, what was the one that lets you search for uh, folding at home? Yeah. I, I mean, I ran all of them, right? And then Bitcoin came along and Bitcoin made me learn about finances. Bitcoin made me learn about budgeting. And uh, from there, I learned a ton about how the entire finance system works. I didn't really know what fiat money was. I didn't really understand that the Federal Reserve wasn't a federal institution. Like there was all these things that I didn't know about uh, back in 2009, 2010 that I have been learning about since then because of Bitcoin. It's like ancillary Bitcoin knowledge. Sure. I mean, roll it back to before you started your career in networking. I yeah. mean, it was probably the internet and that sure. inspired that interest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that it's a phenomenon similar to the internet, whereas the internet was about, you know, suddenly making communication a more open and, you know, there were more options and more innovation. Uh, now we have money doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, like the internet, it's going to be really disruptive and, you know, I think a lot of legacy companies are going to be, and and maybe legacy political groups are going to be a little upset about these changes. But at the end of the day, you know, technology that creates exponential gains, you know, as long as those gains aren't seized by a small group, I mean, I think, I think it can help everybody. And if we look at the way Bitcoin is distributed, it just over time, more and more people hold it. You know, it, one thing, I think one criticism is that there are some very, you know, people who hold huge amounts of Bitcoin. And, you know, I would turn that criticism back on, on the legacy system and say, you know, the, the, stock, the stock market in the United States, I think something like 90% of it is owned by less than 5% of the U.S. population. I mean, that's crazy. That's really, really concentrated. And we don't talk about that. So, you know, I, I, I think there's something here for everybody, frankly. You know, whether or not uh, you just want want a way to save money, you know, because you might need it in in two or three or five years or even to retire on, um, you know, what are your options? Are you going to buy gold and bury it in your backyard? Well, first you need a backyard. You know, that's a big investment. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I felt like for so many years, um, my dad's generation was really in the sweet spot for real estate in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, like the, the real estate prices up in the area where the studio is at and up north were just a steal 40 years ago. Just an absolute steal. They were literally giving land away for free. You could homestead up here. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they, they picked up some land and that has served them so well. But now here I am 40 years later and there's like nothing around to buy anymore. Like the dumpiest places are a million bucks. It's like it's just not where I'm able to put my money in. And I haven't seen anybody come up with a convincing fractional real estate app that I can load on my phone and buy, you know, 10 fractions of a house or something like that. And so in the meantime, for me, I look around and I go, I don't have a lot of time. I, I understand this from a technology standpoint. I have followed this now for 12 years and I look at this and I go, this to me is the lowest friction way to get my purchasing power into something besides the dollar. And like, if I could buy real estate, maybe I would be. Uh, if, I, if I thought gold was the way to go, maybe I would go that way. I don't personally feel like it is. But I, I, I think the position I'm in is very similar to a lot of people where my, my quote unquote lifestyle makes the digital aspect of Bitcoin – the number one thing I like about it. Like so many people get hung up on the fact that it's not tangible, but I actually like that it's tangible. I like that my home is a 40 foot motor home. I've chosen to, you know, try to live the nomad lifestyle. Yeah. Where's your gold vault in there? Right. Exactly. Right. And also my home is a depreciating asset. Well, actually all homes are depreciating assets but sometimes the land underneath them yeah. is appreciating faster than they're depreciating. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have any land. My land is it changes. Um, so I I needed something for me that I could hold digitally, and um, 
Bitcoin just happens to be that perfect thing. And, you know, I, I, I now, after years of following this market, have sort of opened up a little bit to the stock market a little bit, but it's still, uh, it's not a digital first experience like Bitcoin is. And I know that sounds silly, but for me, I, this is just the era I grew up in. I, I go for things that are digital first. Sure. Well, and also, if you want to trade the stock market, you're going to have to have a bank account. Uh, you need a mailing address. You know, to be honest, and I, I know that most people, you know, they onboard to Bitcoin through a regulated exchange. I think that's, you know, at least in the United States, that's the way that most people go about it. Yeah. But um, to be frank, all you need to get into Bitcoin is to know someone with Bitcoin and to hand them some money and to have a Bitcoin wallet, whether it's on your phone or on a computer. I mean, I don't recommend you try this, but you could actually create a Bitcoin wallet on a piece of paper and generate an address to send to. Mm -hmm. That is theoretically possible, but unless you're John Nash, I, I wouldn't try it. I, I've done it as a gift because, you know, when you're like going to give somebody Bitcoin, what do you give them? You got it. Like, so I, I tried the paper wallet thing. What I do now is uh, for family members is I buy a five pack because I don't want to, I'm not like, I'm not giving out Bitcoin like crazy. Let's be honest. I buy a five pack off Etsy of the, like the physical coins and I give people those coins and I say, Hey, yeah, you just got, you know. Oh, oh, just a joke. Yeah. Well, no, I give them that and I give them a hundred dollars of Bitcoin, but. But you know, yeah, like you can't you can't open up a hundred dollars of Bitcoin on oh. Christmas. So have you? Okay, so this is a free product placement. Huh. CoinKite, give us a call. We'd love a sponsorship. Oh yeah, CoinKite, huh? Oh yeah. So uh, CoinKite makes this incredible device called a um, Open Dime. It's a little USB. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, it's a U little USB stick. Hmm. It's like an open board, and um, you you know you stick it into a computer, and it basically it gives you a Bitcoin receive address. And so you can send Bitcoin to that address. And that address is generated from a private key on a secure element on the, on the open dime. And so what you can do is like while the, when you plug it in, while the light is green on the stick, you can just send to that address. You can't see the, re, you can't see the private key that, uh, that would allow you to spend those Bitcoin. But then I can give you the open dime and there's like a, like a little bubble or something. You 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 essentially break something on yeah, the board. Yeah. And that reveals the private key. <laughs> That's so so great. you can then sweep the private key. So it it's 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 wacky. It actually makes Bitcoin physical. Yeah. Oh, they got a they got a three pack. They got a three pack. You can just pick them up. I wonder how much they are though. Yeah, I mean, they, these guys also make the uh, block clock and the cold card. Those are also two really cool products. Oh yeah, I mean if we, uh, I'd love to talk to NVK sometime. I mean, he's a he's a wild guy. Every business model in Bitcoin, CoinKite and NVK have already done and decided that it was too much trouble. <laughs> that does sound like a good conversation. Yeah. So I did the, but I did the Etsy thing. But this is way cooler. This is actually very practical. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. I I going back to the kids thing. I was struck by the fact that I just all three of my kids essentially have a bank account now. You know, and they're all young. Yeah, but I, they can start. They can start saving now. I mean, do you think that they will ever use a check in their life? Uh, it seems pretty unlikely. I mean, I I almost wonder if they will have bank accounts. I mean, my daughter is younger than your kids, and you know, I was in the bank the other day, and I was thinking, I don't think she will ever do this. Because, Boy, if she's lucky, because you know, when you think about it. Um, we're in the United States, and this is the you know the largest economy in the world, uh, has the world's most developed financial system. This is all quantifiable. And yet, there are 30 million Americans, or is it 60 million, 30 or 60, who do not have bank accounts. I, I, have, I have heard it is as high as 70 million. I've heard that the number is even higher than what they've officially reported, that it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could definitely see it. Um, it may be that the bank turns into an app. But I mean, at the end of the day, the reason people are unbanked is that the legacy banking system can't make money off them and doesn't want to serve them. So I don't know how, an, maybe an app would have lower costs than maintaining a bunch of branches so you could take on more clients who have less money. Isn't that what Celsius was trying to do? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar. I mean, to be honest, I'm 
pretty bored with traditional banking. I, I just don't see how it's going to ever be a very good experience because at the end of the day, what do banks do? Banks do interest rate arbitrage. I deposit a hundred bucks. They know, they know because of historical data that when I deposit a hundred bucks, I'm probably not going to spend a hundred bucks immediately. So they can take $98 and they can lend it out. But you know, we live in a world of one, 2% interest rates. There's just not enough money in interest no. to, to sort of justify them lending that money out. And now what are they going to do for their business model? Well, they, they have to monetize their customers some other way. And this has the, uh, the side effect of most banks just don't want to deal with people who aren't going to deposit huge amounts of money. Well, I think we could see um, – well, they, they need to figure it out quick because – this isn't an endorsement of Celsius. In fact, I can't even use them in Washington State. Uh, and I think self-custody is better than – if like if Celsius did multi-sig, I think that would be great. But Celsius is trying to essentially offer an unbanked experience, savings account, debit card, you know, the whole nine. And what they have to compete on, because there's a dozen of these in the Bitcoin space, is experience. They have to – they have to have a good experience, right? The banks so, don't have to compete on experience. So hold on. Well, yeah, because banks are surrounded by a regulatory moat. So, yeah. you know, there's like two but or three. Could new- that change? That's where I was going. Is like maybe if people start using these alternative banks, which I don't even know we should even refer to them as that, but these alternative financial institutions, maybe that'll force the banks to try to compete on experience. That's better than what they offer now. I don't know. I mean- Frankly, I think the future is very dark for traditional commercial banking. And specifically, I'm talking about central bank digital currencies. Even I, I think you referred to uh, an, a, an executive order from the uh, United States that might be coming out that, that talks about how uh, the government wants to study uh, central bank digital currency and regulate you know, Bitcoin. And central bank digital currencies... Um, if such a thing exists in an economy, it destroys that banking sector on day one because a CBDC is every citizen having an account with the central bank. Well, if I have an account with the central bank, what do I need a commercial bank that's a layer on top of the central bank middleman at that point? Yeah, they're just a middleman. So, But they're going to have to build the system that a comp that – that includes them. There's no way they're just going to flip a switch and all these banks are out. So you will have a middleman. So the experience will be horrible. Well, I wonder. I mean, it'll be horrible either way because as anyone who's ever used a government app, it uh, they're, they're generally not exactly streamlined in terms of UX. But every CBDC proposal I've read, and I've read three so far, so I mean, maybe there are more that are more freedom-loving, but... Everyone includes KYC, know your customer laws, anti-money laundering laws, you know, built in from the ground zero. And that means that everything you do with, with this system, with these coins or dollars or whatever they are in your CBDC account is completely surveilled. It's checked at every, every step. And if you are doing something that is not uh, allowed – um, it will be blocked and you may face consequences. You know, it's, it's allowing uh, a government entity to directly surveil every economic action you take. To be honest, if you could watch every financial transaction someone takes, do you even need to read their mind? I think you probably know enough about them to... Yeah. Why do I need to fill out my taxes? Yeah. So <laughs> I, but I kind of, the one thing that strikes me about what you're saying is it kind of feels like we're already in that position with Visa and MasterCard or Coinbase. You know, I, uh, I have a Coinbase card and I load it up with USDC and I spend USDC on my Coinbase card to get crypto rewards. And Coinbase is a company that could just choose to block a transaction. I mean, they could take that same action. Same with Visa and MasterCard. Or you hear about banks that have decided, we're not going to let you ACH transfer into that crypto exchange. Sure. I mean, and that's the perils of trusted third parties. So cryptocurrency exchanges are in every sense not uh, 
sort of crypto businesses. In a, in a sense, they're legacy businesses. They they are the the interface between legacy finance and the you know exciting frontier of cryptocurrency. I've heard it creepily described as the membrane, the fiat membrane. Oh yeah, I mean, it's nasty. These these I mean, exchanges are generally speaking not places where you want to leave a bunch of money. You know, there's a history of hacks. And they're also, um, you know, they're corporations. They're created by government charter. They're vulnerable to any legislation uh, that is passed regarding their customers. And so, you know, personally, I think that's the sort of institution I'd, I'd rather avoid. You know who agrees with you, too? Who's that? The CEO of Kraken, the uh, Kraken Exchange. Uh, they were in a Twitter thread talking about um, shutting down crypto exchange purchases. I think it might have been in, it might have been around the Canadian trucker conversation. I'm not sure. But the person on Twitter asked, is it possible Kraken will be put in a position where they are told to freeze assets by the police without judicial consent? And then Jesse Powell responds, 100% yes, it has and will happen. And 100% yes, we will be forced to comply. If you're worried about it, don't keep your funds with any centralized, regulated custodian. We cannot protect you. Get your coins and cash out and only trade P2P. So interesting statement from uh, the CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange. Yeah, I thought so. I agree with the sentiment. And, you know, so why is he saying that? Well, I think he's probably banking on the fact that most people are Not pretty, bother. <laughs> pretty lazy. Yeah. And, you know, everyone tends to think, you know, hey, I've done nothing wrong. You know, at the same time, uh, I think that most people don't think they've done something wrong until they have. So, mm-hmm. you know, surprises mm-hmm. in store. Yeah, and it also doesn't account for the security. Poss- uh, you know, the, that's still a risk. That's still an exposure. Yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, cryptocurrency accounts are insured. So if there is a yeah. hack, customers are on the line. And it also seems like they would be susceptible to a run. Um, if everybody decided for some reason that, say, Kraken was no longer trustworthy and a bunch of people wanted to withdraw their Bitcoin, do we know for sure they actually have enough Bitcoin to cover all of that? I mean, likely not, because you know their business model is probably similar to the banking model. I mean, yes, they earn uh, money on fees when people make uh, transactions, trading fees. But, um, you know, whenever you have a lot of people depositing money into your mm-hmm. platform, especially if you can use, you know, whatever surveillance capitalism data to classify your customers, you can basically say, hey, all these degen traders who are here to gamble on dog coins, you know what, we could probably just take all the money in their account and uh, do something else with it. They're, they're not going to withdraw that. They're going to get wrecked. You know, (laughs) it's so cynical, but probably true, because, you know, the thing about these exchanges is the fees is a race to the bottom. You know, they they're always trying to one up each other with lower fees. So they got to make the money somewhere else. Unfortunately, there's there's no loyalty in the uh, the Bitcoin trading and exchange business. You know, I think most people end up on Coinbase first simply because it's uh, they have a lot of marketing. Yeah. But if you ever uh, look up like consumer reports coinbase you'll just see like hundreds of pages of complaints I or mean, reddit um if you ever go to the coinbase subreddit it's post after post after post of people losing their account people having some sort of problem getting no response from support that said that also could just be a result of coinbase being so damn huge you know the bigger you are the more problems uh because i've had a coinbase account literally since they opened um, a hundred years ago, like, I mean, I was probably customer number five and I've never had a problem. I don't use it heavily. I don't rely on it as my exclusive place for, uh, you know, exchange type activities. But, um, I think part of that's their scale. They clearly have infrastructure issues though. I hate to say it, but it's so clear whenever the market is freaking out, Coinbase almost always goes down. They put up a Super Bowl QR code, Coinbase goes down. Well, I mean, there's a reason why. And the reason why is that Coinbase is an altcoin casino. You know, Coinbase's business model is to, you know, basically charge fees to altcoins that list on their platform. And I think what they probably do is they take a bunch of the token and then they put it on the front page, some worthless altcoin with a shady dev team behind it, 
just there's just no fundamental reason why this thing should even exist in the world. And they put it on the front page right next to Bitcoin. And so you show up, you know, you clicked on that Super Bowl link and you're there and you're like, oh, there's Bitcoin, $40,000. Or here's, um, you know, Super Bowl coin and it's, oh, five cents. Gosh, that seems cheap. I could buy a lot more of that. You could buy, you could buy a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Because, because <laughs> you know, if you, haven't, if you haven't done the research, which is not easy to do, you right. know, I, I'm years into this thing and I'm just beginning to understand. Well, and I think so much of the conversation is around one whole Bitcoin. Like we don't talk about Bitcoin as the subdividable thing very much. We talk about Bitcoin as holes. So people, when they see it, they don't think I could buy $35 of that. Uh, well, then let's create a policy Let's talk in Satoshis. So for those who don't know, uh, a Bitcoin as a unit does not actually exist. If you go into a Bitcoin node, I forget the exact command, you like look up your balance, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to see like one BTC. Uh, you're going to see a very large number. And that's because a Bitcoin is actually just 100 million Satoshis. And so... Satoshis are the basic Linux uh, unit of Bitcoin. Right. And in the beginning, because Bitcoin had no price and then, you know, was, was suddenly a penny and then a dollar, you know, it didn't make sense to talk in terms of Satoshis because it was, you know, like one, one hundred millionth of a penny. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the price was quoted in Bitcoin and people began to think a Bitcoin was a single, a single thing like a dollar. Uh, but I, but in fact, underneath the hood, underneath the software, it's a hundred million satoshis, and uh, satoshis are still pretty cheap. You know, if I give uh, Chris a dollar, he might hand me what two thousand satoshis. Yeah, sounds like a deal to me. Yeah, well, and I was uh, watching a documentary on El Salvador, and uh, that's how they t- that's how they do it all. They don't buy like a bitcoin in El Salvador; they buy twenty dollars worth of satoshis, and that's what they transact with, right? Um, they deal in Satoshis every day. They don't deal in Bitcoin numbers. And I do wonder if one day it wouldn't be better for us all to make that transition and start looking at it in Satoshis. And then people, would they'd show up and they'd look at the price. And like you say, oh, well, 20 bucks. Oh, geez, I, I could get, you know, 20,000 Satoshis or whatever. Um, that's, that would be a, that I think would be more attractive. I think it would take people out of the altcoin game a little bit. Sure. Well, I mean, I think we can... We can popularize the, uh, you know, the truth of Satoshi, you know, <laughs> sounds like a gospel or something. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. Host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with a Raspberry Pi, and get endless excuses to buy more electronic toys. The self-hosted show will give you ideas, guidance, and a fun community to experiment with running way too many computers at home. Check it out at selfhosted.show or search for self-hosted show in your podcast app.